So what we're looking at, for those of you who are visiting with us, haven't been with us before, we are, uh, I think with this lesson, go past uh, the length of the last time I did church history back about 1996, maybe even earlier than that. Um, I was just talking with Brick, uh, realized recently that next year will mark uh, 30 years uh, at PRBC for me. Um, When you got someone like Pastor Fry, who's been around like forever, 30 years sounds like, you know, nothing, but, uh, but yeah, 30, 30 years. And somewhere in that course of time, we did church history. We did it in 52 sessions. And I think this is the 52nd session. So, and we still got a ways to go. Uh, no, we're not going all the way. Don't worry. As I've mentioned, we go up through the Reformation and that's about, uh, that's about the, as far as I'm comfortable going, as far as my studies are concerned, but Anyway, um, we are currently in the factors that led to the Reformation and explained why uh, the Reformation began when it did, why it couldn't have begun earlier than it did, all of this in reference to God's providence in ordering all of these things. And so we had looked at the corruption in uh, the papacy, the great schism, also called the Babylonian captivity of the church, the Avignon papacy. Uh, and that this, over the course of centuries, had helped to break down in Western thought the inviolability and, and uh, power of the Roman papacy. Not to the point where, you know, I mean, obviously in uh, the 1870s, you're going to have uh, the first Vatican Council proclaim the infallibility of the Pope. Uh, to be honest with you, nobody at this point in time, except maybe a few popes, um, had even dreamed that one up yet. So it was still in, in the development uh, phase. Um, but still, it did help uh, to, especially for uh, the lay people, uh, to demonstrate that uh, that particular uh, institution uh, was liable to, to error and to problems. And so the next... Uh, issue uh, vitally important in the rise of the Reformation is the fall of Constantinople. Now, uh, of course, today this is known as Istanbul. It's uh, 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 the ancient Byzantium. Uh, It had been the seat of the Western Roman Empire uh, after the the split between East and West. uh, The uh, Eastern Roman Empire had been focused there in Constantinople, Byzantium, uh, now modern-day Istanbul, and it had functioned as the head of the Byzantine Empire. If you do any study on Islam, uh, and, and interestingly enough, uh, one of the alleged prophecies of Muhammad um, has to do with the Romans and the Persians, and the Romans would have been the Byzantines um, centered there in Constantinople. Um, they... This particular city had a rich, rich, rich history, and it happens to sit at an extremely uh, strategic location. It's sort of the gateway into Europe. And uh, Constantinople and the crumbling, shrinking, but still there Byzantine Empire um, had, had functioned for many centuries as a buffer uh, against the expanding Islamic presence. Um, then, brilliantly, uh, one of the, uh, and I mentioned this uh, during uh, the brief discussion we had the Crusades, um, purely due to human greed, and here is, here is an example where human greed 
led to uh, human self-destruction. Um, certain Italian uh, business interests, uh, nation states, uh, were having a feud with Constantinople, and so uh, they worked out with one of the Crusades that, hey, we'll give you, we'll 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 provide you the ships to get you over there because it's a long walk <laughs> from Europe to the Holy Land. Um, lots of bad stuff can happen as as it did. Um, so we'll give you the ships, but we'd like you to sort of hang a left and go sack Constantinople while you're at it, uh, which they did. And this week in Constantinople, and eventually, not, you know, not the next year, or maybe not even the next generation, but uh, in a relatively short period of time, uh, did lead to the collapse of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, um, and hence the uh, the Islamic movement into Europe itself, um, which was a massive, massive issue at the time of the Reformation, and in fact is relevant to you and me. And you're sitting there going, how? Well, many ways, as we'll note in a moment. But one way that it's directly relevant to us is this historical reality of the fall of Constantinople and the invasion of the Ottoman Turks into uh, Eastern, uh, what we would call today Eastern Europe, um, is how both Roman Catholics and magisterial Protestants, so, uh, you know, Calvin, Zwingli, Luther, their, uh, their followers, uh, how they viewed Anabaptists. Now, we come out of the English Baptists. Uh, we come out of a, a, a later form of that. But the idea of a free church, the idea of a church that is made up of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ and hence have been publicly baptized, um, that concept was considered horrifically treasonous in the days of the Reformation. Because, as I've noted, the tax rolls of the state were the baptismal rolls of the church. And so to seek for a free church was to fundamentally compromise the unity of the society. And that was seen as weakening the ability of that society, that nation, that culture to withstand the attack from the outside from the Muslims. And so uh, very often... The anti-free church, anti-Anabaptists, as they were called. Of course, Anabaptists could cover a huge range of beliefs, some of which weren't even Trinitarian. Um, but a lot of the polemic that you will see uh, against the Anabaptists then was imported to deal with us. Uh, when Reformed Baptists came into existence and so on and so forth, um, was based upon this, this idea of a fundamental attack upon Christendom. Um, I mean, I, I, I sort of smile to myself <clears throat> every time. I didn't look it up, but um, one of the, there, there's, there's two, two or three, really only two, maybe three Luther, Luther written uh, hymns that we sing in the Trinity Hymnal. And one of them's a fairly short one. Uh, I think it's on the, it's on the left page down at the bottom. <laughs> um, but um, if you look it up, um, it uses the very term Christendom uh, from Luther. And it's fascinating to me 
to recognize what that meant to Luther. Uh, how many of you saw my little video uh, that we shot over in Germany back in September where I'm at the, um, the Wartburg Castle and uh, we're talking about the Anabaptist that was in prison there. Anybody, anybody see that? A couple of you did? Okay. Um, long story here that we'll... I'll probably show that, you know, come to think of it. I'll probably show that um, when we get into the Anabaptists later on, because it's pretty much what we finish up with. Um, but that whole concept of Christendom, uh, one of my favorite films, which we'll definitely watch. We've got some movies to watch in the Sunday School coming up. That, I'm not sure how what we're going to... We'll, we'll just announce on the, on the Sunday School thing. We watch such and such a movie. Go to YouTube and watch it, because they're all on YouTube free now. Um, but one of the, the films we've watched a number of times on uh, New Year's Eve services here uh, is called The Radicals. And uh, uh, Michael Sattler, uh, the story of Michael Sattler and his uh, eventual execution. Um, and uh, at his trial, he was, uh, he was caught by the Roman Catholics rather than the Protestants, so the Protestants hadn't treated him very well either. And would have done the same thing to him one way or the other. Uh, but at his trial, um, he was doing too well. And so they changed their approach and uh, brought in the, the Muslims and how you're supposed to, you know, are, are they not the Antichrist, so on and so forth, and, and got Sattler that way rather than trying to deal with him from a straight theological perspective. And again, it all goes back to sacralism, the, the sacerdotal church, all that, all that kind of stuff. Well, all that comes back to um, the fall of Constantinople, uh, and uh, the, the, we would identify as political pressures that resulted from that from the Islamic invasion from the East. But you've got to realize we separate stuff out that they did not separate out. And so it's sometimes difficult for us. We, we try to import our categories backwards into their experience, and it just simply wasn't their experience. Now, what was vitally important Oh, that, that stuff aside, what was really vitally important was that it's not like the people in Constantinople didn't see this coming. And so uh, many escaped from Constantinople to the West, including many Greek scholars. And they brought their manuscripts with them. And so at the same time that, as we're going to see in a moment, you have the Renaissance and humanism arising. Um, there needed to be original sources for them to be drawing from. And many of those original sources, which remain in various European libraries to this day, uh, were brought into Europe uh, from those Greek scholars fleeing from Constantinople. And so when we think about, um, you know, when we talk about Zwingli, uh, we're going to talk about how he would do a debate with Roman Catholic priests, and he would simply come in, and he'd have two pulpits set like this, and he'd simply put his Greek New Testament down the one, and his Hebrew Bible on the other, and that's all he'd use. And this poor priest, all he can do is muddle his way through the Latin Vulgate. Uh, and so Zwingli is just able to slice and dice him, uh, because he's, he's uh, become proficient in these more primitive languages as far as the scriptures are concerned. Well, where did that stuff come from? Well, a lot of it came uh, when those Greek-speaking scholars uh, fled west uh, immediately prior to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Uh, and also, they would then be very uh, important in laying the foundation for the relearning of these languages, because... 
even at this time, even for, for uh, the next uh, 100 years, especially in Roman Catholic countries, learning the biblical languages would bring you under suspicion of heresy. Who needs to... Who are the Greeks? Well, the Greeks are heretics. Then who needs to learn their language except people who are heretics? And so even learning those languages and, and learning Hebrew, oh my goodness, uh, that was even worse. So uh, it, it was a dangerous thing. And... Um, uh, so from, especially within the Roman Catholic areas, uh, for that to be taking place. So it was a fascinating, a fascinating period of time uh, to be alive for, for certain. And we can be thankful for those who risked their lives, literally, uh, to learn biblical languages so we might have uh, what we have uh, today. Now, next thing in the, the factors in the rise of the Reformation, very obviously one we've all been waiting for, printing. I mean, if, if you're going to identify almost any one thing, uh, that was absolutely necessary for the Reformation, as we know the Reformation historically to have taken place. It was, it was printing. Uh, we've talked about uh, uh, Wycliffe and stuff like that. The problem is anything... I mean, think about how widely spread Wycliffe's writings were, and they were all done by hand. How much more widespread would they have been if there had been printing press? I mean, if Jan Hus is deeply influenced in Bohemia by what Wycliffe writes from England, and there's no printing press, you can get the idea of why it's, um, well, one of the things I learned uh, when we were over in Germany this last time, well, I think it was in preparation. No, it was while we were over in Germany this last time. Um, Luther held the record for the largest number of uh, uh, units printed, uh, biggest distribution in Germany, in the German language, for 200 years after his death. For 200 years after his death. So the reformers figured out, get the word out. Uh, they were the first people to use the Internet. Uh, they would have been big on Facebook, no two ways about it. So uh, not for very long until Facebook censored them. But anyway, um, uh, that's just sort of how that works and is working even to this day. Uh, but uh, printing, absolutely vital to the Reformation, both to its start and to its promulgation. Because, uh, as we're going to see when we get into Luther, um, key to Luther's coming to have the proper insight and understanding justification, and, and then that forces him to understand Solo Scriptura and, and all the other things that we'll, we'll get into, was the fact that he possessed, uh, during that pivotal period in his life, a printed edition of the Novum Instrumentum, the first edition of Erasmus's New Testament. And I hesitate to say Erasmus's Greek New Testament. That's normally how it would be described to you. But Erasmus has been one of my uh, sort of pet projects over the years. Read a lot more books about Erasmus than probably you should. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, his first edition, uh, he was not really focused on the Greek. The Greek was a, sort of an afterthought. It was just sort of a really cool idea to have a diglot, uh, a two-language text, where on the one page you have the Latin, the facing page you have the Greek. Um, his focus was on providing a new Latin translation, which he knew was going to get him into a lot of trouble. Because by this point in time, the Vulgate had reigned supreme for, for over a 1,000 years. And you don't tamper with what's been being used for a 1,000 years. 
But as we're going to see uh, in a moment, uh, uh, Erasmus had come to understand that the Vulgate had experienced corruption over its transmission. And so he provided a, a, a fresh Latin translation. And then in the process, just sort of threw the Greek in. Well, by the third edition, the Greek was now the focus of all the controversy rather than just an afterthought. But it was the having that Greek and Latin available to you that was, it was one of the key issues for Luther in Luther's own studying of, for example, the concept of repentance. Uh, being able to see ponitentium uh, agate in Latin over here and metanoiate over here and be able to look it up and go, hmm, don't mean quite the same things, you know. Uh, vitally important, vitally important. So printing had to exist beforehand to provide some of the, you know, um, uh, Zwingli needed to have his Greek and Hebrew texts, and, and Calvin needed to have his stuff, and uh, there needed to be you know, printing uh, already in existence, and then the utilization of printing in the promulgation of, uh, of that text. As you know, you know, I went to the Gutenberg Museum. It was the last stop we did on our tour back in September, and um, I, I didn't take the tour. <laughs> Uh, you might say, why? Well, first of all, I was pre-toured out by then, okay? I mean, we had been doing this for, for quite some time, and I was, I was just toured out. And so uh, I, I should do it. Um, maybe I will do it someday, but um, I did have a good reason. I was searching for a German bookstore to buy a German Bible for our Muslim bus drivers. So I did have a good reason for why I was doing it. I did find one eventually, even though... <laughs> Oh, such a secular state. You know, I walk into this large two-story bookstore uh, and I, I ask for uh, a Luther Bible and these poor ladies behind the counter are like, oh, what? You know, and, um, and it, it may have been my German's that bad, but I don't think it was. Uh, it, it, and they weren't even having to figure out what I was saying in English. I was speaking German. So still, it's like, oh, religious stuff. Oh, there's a religious section upstairs over to that side. And you can just tell they have a lot of people coming in asking for Bibles there, you know. And, and I picked up the Bible, you know, blowing the, blowing the dust out. Sad. But anyway, um, uh, so uh, it would have been interesting because I... Uh, I know the invention of the movable block type print. Fascinating. Gutenberg used a mirror uh, to do his typesetting because you have to typeset it backwards, obviously. And so you know, developed the idea of using a mirror and stuff. And they even, I even did see they have a little place you can go over and you can put on a, a printer's thing and you can set type and print stuff and the whole nine yards. And so I'm sure it's quite, quite interesting. But anyways, in 1455... Um, the Bible was printed at Mainz at uh, 1,282 pages long. Um, and up until that point, uh, the, the whole process was a closely guarded secret. I mean, because sort of like, hey, I've got something here nobody else has got, and nobody else has figured it out, so I'm going you know, to get myself rich here. The problem is, uh, but Mainz was sacked the next year. Um, and uh, they broke into the print shop and stole everything and spread the technology all over Europe. So much for uh, thinking you were going to get rich. But uh, anyways, as, as we all probably already know, uh, the invention of, of printing in this form uh, was one of the 
the most important developments in, in Western history. There's no question about it. Um, the ability to communicate quickly, to print quickly, very, very quickly the church and state are developing what eventually we call the Index Prohibitorum, the Index of Prohibited Books. Uh, Rome would develop that uh, after the Reformation, and of course all Luther's books would be on it, and so on and so forth. And, and then you get book burning. Now, book burning had been happening before the invention of printing. It's the, the fires just got a lot bigger uh, afterwards because you had a whole lot more to burn uh, than, uh, than you had uh, initially. And uh, so uh, it, it's... It's hard to overestimate uh, the impact that printing had. Uh, we have lived in a time period in our own lives of a similar uh, revolution, however, uh, and that is obviously the invention uh, of the Internet by Al Gore. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, that particular uh, invention uh, has revolutionized things, I think, in a very similar way. Uh, to the way uh, the printing press did, with one difference. Um, and, and that is, it seems to me that the invention of printing led to a greater literacy, uh, whereas the invention of the Internet has led, I think, to a tremendous diminishment of the attention span of most adults, and hence, I think, to a diminishment in literacy. Because I don't think being able to read a meme... Uh, is literacy. And if memes tell me anything, most of them can't spell for their lives, even with spell-checking software. I mean, I cannot believe how many times I've looked at a meme, and the point was funny, but it was completely ruined by the fact that the person who produced it could not spell basic English words. And it wasn't because they were trying to be funny, either. It's just they didn't know. And it's just sad. Um, So... While, while the modern Internet has the potentiality of advancing literacy, it seems that because of its form, more often it, it produces a shallow um, substitute for literacy. You don't, I don't think you read as much because of it than we did when we actually read books, you know, real whole books, things like that. So um, just my, my thought on um, on that. Now, obviously, associated with this, uh, the next issue, the Renaissance. The Renaissance. Now, the Renaissance, many people would say the Renaissance contained within it the very seeds of what we now see happening in Europe today, and in a sense, it's true. Um, the wild-eyed secularism, uh, the insanity that we see around us in transgenderism, things like that, can that be traced in some fashion? Back to the Renaissance. Well, I suppose so. You can trace almost anything back if, if you really want to work hard enough at it. But are there seeds of the coming humanism and secularism within Renaissance thought? Well, I suppose. I don't think it had to be that way, but you, you could say that. It, it is interesting to recognize that the world was changing and something was going to happen. Uh, there was going to be some kind of change in European society. It could not remain the primarily rural, agrarian, feudal, uh, the Pope controls everything type of a situation. You know that in 1492, (laughs) Columbus sailed the ocean blue um, and uh, discovers the new world. Um, The medieval world was coming apart the seams. Um, 
nationalism was on the rise. Very important to recognize why that's important. Why would nationalism being on the rise be relevant to the Reformation? Real simple. Um, when uh, Tetzel is selling his indulgences in Saxony, under the breath, under, under people's breath, um, you had people saying, well, why can't that money stay in Germany and build cathedrals in Germany and help German Christians rather than going to Italy to build Italian cathedrals? Now, up until the rise of nationalism, um, you had basically had the idea that people were um, citizens of the Holy Roman Empire first and foremost, and then uh, you might be in the German area or an Italian area or something like that. But uh, the idea of being a German first and having that as an identity marker this was something that was, again, important in, uh, in the rise of the Reformation. Travel was increasing. Remember, during the medieval period, average person never traveled more than seven miles any one direction from where they were born. That, that's a pretty small world, very, very small world. Um, I remember my parents commenting back when we lived in Pennsylvania that we would actually meet people in Pennsylvania uh, who had never left the valley in which they lived between the various ranges of the Appalachians. And I mean, so those mountains defined the world for them. And we always found that so strange because my parents always wanted to travel and stuff like that and see other things. And so uh, travel was increasing. Uh, with that came knowledge of new places. Uh, there was also a fascinating concentration of very dynamic, important personalities at this point in history. Um, in the year 1500, in the year 1500, Leonardo da Vinci was 45 years old. Christopher Columbus was 45 years old. Machiavelli was 31. Copernicus was 27. Erasmus of Rotterdam was 33. Michelangelo was 25. Raphael, that's actually a painter for those of you who grew up with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Actually, most of these I need to define those as uh, because you're a little confused right now. Uh, Raphael was 17. Luther was 17, Zwingli was 17, and Calvin would be born in 1509. So that's quite a list of, of individuals who have had a, a massive impact upon Western society. Um, and they're all alive at the same time, except for Calvin. He's the second generation, but he, right afterwards. There was also at this time uh, a shift in economic distribution. Um, very important was the development of a middle class. That middle class had begun to develop for a couple different reasons. Uh, the Crusades, when you had a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of people leave, including knights and people like that, and maybe not come back, their lands would frequently end up being distributed amongst a wider number of people. And then very, very importantly, something we've talked about before, the Black Death. Which, by the way, they did not ever describe it as the Black Death. It was called the Great Mortality between 1347 and 1354. Uh, primarily, 1348-1351 was the, was the primary uh, period of that incredible uh, thing. When I was in seminary, my church history professor said that one out of every three people in Europe died 
during that time period. Um, I purchased a few books uh, last year, again, in preparation for the, for the uh, actually, well, it was last year, uh, in preparation for the trip over to, uh, to Germany and the, the, the tour we did over there. And uh, uh, the more modern books I was very interested in seeing uh, tend to say that number is the low end. That probably across Europe it was 45 to 50 percent, and in many of the major cities as much as 75 percent. Um, so let's take one out of every two. <laughs> um, that's a huge number of people to die within about three years. And just run the numbers in your mind. If there was X amount of wealth in Europe in 1346, and there is now one half X number of people in 1352, uh, everybody's got twice as much as they did before. And especially laborers. You know, you may still be rich, you may still be in nobility or something like that. Maybe you could hide out, you know, in a high mountain uh, castle and keep away from it. But uh, you still have to have people work your land and, and bring in your crops and fix your walls. And all of a sudden, there's half as many of them as there used to be, which means they can get paid a whole lot more because the guy next down, down the road gets into a bidding war with you as to who gets the workers. And so between... Travel, there was also very interestingly, I only mention this in passing because of what we face today all the time, um, but the 1200s, the 13th century, the 1200s were a, a good century for mankind in the sense that there was, and we've been able to prove this with tree ring studies and stuff like that, uh, there was global warming. And it had nothing to do with man. <laughs> that just happens on its own. Uh, there's this thing up in the sky. It's real hot, and uh, it goes through cycles, and uh, just uh, just sort of works that way. Um, uh, and uh, so it 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 got so warm. Um, well, there's a reason why it's called Greenland, but it's not green anymore. Uh, you were the 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 arable, cultivatable, uh, profitable area of crop growing in Europe went a good bit north. And everyone's, you know, up until the modern period where you have this utter ignorance of history, people knew this for a long time. I mean, I was in seminary in the 80s, and my professor mentioned this. He says, it's been well known um, that there are a number of, for example, cities uh, in northern England and Scotland that are named in such a way that had to do with vineyards and the growing of crops that you can't grow there anymore. But they once did. It's etched in the walls. So there was a time when it was considerably warmer than it is even now. Can you imagine what it was like in Phoenix then? <laughs> That's why there wasn't a city here. They were smarter than we are. Yeah, good. Um, <laughs> they didn't have Palo Verde back then to run all the air conditioners. Um, so um, so when, you can, when you can plant more crops, guess what? You get more people. And so there is a population boom because you've got enough food to, I mean, that's the big issue is, is food. Uh, and so going into the 1300s, um, things are looking pretty good. 
except that it cooled off again. And all of a sudden, those fields that had, had you know, started producing less and less and less, it's getting colder and colder and colder. And a lot of people theorized that part of the reason for the great mortality uh, in the middle of that century uh, can be related to the, the degradation of the food supply and, and the, the bringing on of the cold weather and, and uh, uh, so on and so forth. And so that is a fascinating thing to, to observe um, as well that is normally not mentioned by anybody. Um, so the point is you get a middle class, and when you get a, a middle class, um, a couple of things start developing as a result you get banking uh, because the middle class has money. They want to do something with it. And so banking as an industry begins to develop, especially in Italy, but it spreads from there. Um, and you then have as well, very importantly, the uh, beginning of the spread of universities. You had had the first universities in the 1100s in, uh, in Europe, and now these begin to spread out from uh, the major cities like Paris, and uh, you get larger and larger numbers of universities. The more universities you have, the more opportunity for education, uh, scholarship, uh, research, uh, study of the heavens, study of biology, the whole nine yards uh, begins uh, as you're coming out of those, uh, those dark ages. And so, as you know, as you, well, you may know, those universities are very often a hotbed of new ideas, I mean, we'll look at it today. It's not, it's not, they're not hotbeds of new ideas anymore. You can only have one idea in our universities anymore, uh, and that's whatever Karl Marx tells you. But um, uh, for many centuries, um, that's where innovation would come from. And, of course, at the Reformation, uh, the church recognized that it was the universities that were of such great danger. Uh, that's where the, uh, the, the bad stuff was, was coming from. And they knew that that was a problem. Then you have the rise of humanism. And obviously for us, humanism is a bad word. Uh, secular humanism is, is a, you know, almost swearing at somebody in our, in our context. But it was part of the Renaissance movement. Um, Italian humanism was at the center of the movement. And the great cry of of ancient humanism was Ad Fontes. Ad Fontes, to the sources, to the source, literally. Um, and so humanism at this time did not emphasize human autonomy against God. All the humanists of this time period would have been Christians in the sense of a acknowledgement of the supernatural, so on and so forth. But humanism emphasized study, scholarship, and the reading of the original languages over against simply repeating what Peter Lombard's sentences said from the Middle Ages. Uh, so it was sort of a reaction against the cold, stilted scholasticism that we had looked at before. Uh, it was not primarily a denial of the supernatural, um, the seeds of today's humanism, however, were definitely present uh, at this time, and you can draw some pretty straight lines uh, over time uh, back to this time period. Now, two of the individuals that we'll look at briefly, <clears throat> well, we'll just look at one now and start on the other. We're not going to be able to finish them this morning. But 
Um, fascinating fellow that you've probably... How many of you can honestly say uh, that you have ever heard of Lorenzo Valla? V-A-L-L-A, Lorenzo Valla. Mike, are you saying yes? No? Oh, okay. Uh, brother, brother Callahan? Huh? You heard it when you were in school. That's a good place to hear it. That's a good place to hear it. Um, you owe a lot to Lorenzo Valla, whether you know it or not. It's one of the things I like about teaching history, is you, you start finding out some of the people in the past that you owe things to and didn't even know you owed it to. <laughs> and I think there's something good about us moderns when we start realizing how much we owe to people who came before us. We tend to think we did this all on our own. We didn't. Um, to this time, anachronism. Remember we've talked about anachronism. Um, I've mentioned to you five, six times in the course of this, of this uh, study uh, that during the medieval period, if you look at the artwork, uh, especially artwork depicting biblical scenes, David will be riding on a horse, and he's riding to a castle, and he's wearing armor, and he's got knights, um, because that's what kings do. And if you don't travel more than seven miles from where you're born, uh, if you don't ever go to Rome and go, hey, those people look different than their old statues, uh, you know, you end up thinking everything's always been the way it is now. And Lorenzo Valla was one of those <coughs> individuals that had um, a capacity that very few of us have. And that was to think outside of the strictures of um, his particular time frame in history. And Valo recognized that things had changed, that things were changing. Uh, he was a literary critic, and he would look at ancient works and go, that uh, couldn't have been written back then. So, for example he proved that the great donation of Constantine, upon which papal authority was based, the idea that Constantine had donated the city of Rome to the papacy, this donation of Constantine had been viewed as, here's proof. The emperor gave Rome to the papacy. This, you know, uh, he proved it was, uh, in fact, a forgery. Now, of course, today, everyone recognizes that. But in that day... This is a good way to guarantee you're going to find yourself bound to a bunch of wood and lit up like a match. It really was. It didn't matter whether you were right or wrong. Uh, this was dangerous stuff. But Vala proved the nation of Constantine was in fact a forgery. In his Adnotations in Novum Testamentum, notes in the New Testament, he compared the current text of the Latin Vulgate and here's, here's the thing, this is brilliant when you think about it. Everybody knew who had translated the Vulgate, the great Jerome. And so I don't know if Vala's just sitting around one day, sipping a, a Pepsi or something like that, but um, talk about anachronism. Uh, but uh, he goes, you know, the Vulgate has been copied and copied and copied and copied generation after generation after generation after generation for 1,100 years. Um, well, a thousand years. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for change and stuff like that there. 
But you know what hasn't been copied over and over and over and over and over again would be Jerome's commentaries. They're not nearly as popular. I mean, they've been copied a few times, but they're not, you know, it's not like the Vulgate. So I bet that if I go back to Jerome's commentaries, I'll be able to find what he originally wrote and compare it with what's in the Vulgate and see if there's been changes. Well, golly, Bob, he was right. Um, he found numerous changes in the text of the Latin Vulgate in comparison to Jerome's commentaries. Now, who would have thought of that? Well, a smart guy did. Uh, and that was Lorenzo Valla. Now, like I said, um, this was dangerous, so he never published his work. <laughs> what, what's, what's it like to, uh, to write all your stuff down, discover all this stuff, and go, well, I know that's true. But nobody else does, and I ain't stupid enough to tell them. <laughs> you know, I, I like my own skin uh, well too well. And uh, so he just hid that stuff away and you know, shared it with one or two friends he could trust, but he wasn't going to go to print with this uh, because he wanted to live a nice long life. Well, he died in 1457, and... Uh, these two never met, but the reason most of us know about Lorenzo Valla is because the next guy we look at, which we're not going to finish in two minutes, I can assure you, uh, because, again, we owe a lot to him, and I could probably end up telling you more about him than you ever wanted to know, and that is a fellow by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, born approximately 1466. So he dies you know, within a decade, uh, approximately. He was born about a, a decade after uh, Valla. And he dies in 1536. And uh, he's called the Prince of the Humanists. Um, and the primary reason we even know about Vala is that uh, Erasmus was rummaging around in a library, which is what scholars in those days did. They didn't sit there with a computer Googling stuff. Uh, they didn't sit there running databases and... Uh, doing uh, bibliographical ransacking on a, on a glowing screen, uh, which is what we do today. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm doing. I mean, when I find a good book in the textual critical area, you go to the bibliography and start going, ooh, ooh, got to get that one, ooh, got to get, you know, that's, you know, didn't have that, that ability. Uh, didn't even have a card catalog back then. Remember card catalogs? Anyone remember card catalogs? Oh, yeah, woo-hoo. Uh, if you don't remember card catalogs, you're a youngin'. Um, <laughs> Man, uh, that, was our, that, was, that was the Google of my age. Uh, you know, pull that baby out. and Wasn't that fun? And it just felt you, made you feel so scholarly. Anyway, um, that was doing hard work. Uh, that was doing the real, the real research back then. Uh, he's, he's rummaging through old manuscripts, and he runs across this guy named Lorenzo Valla. And he starts reading, starts reading what <laughs> Lorenzo Valla had to say, and he's like, whoa. And so Erasmus was evidently considerably braver than Valla was uh, because it didn't take long for Erasmus to publish Valla's works, figuring he can always blame Valla. So he, doesn't, he can't get burned. The worst thing to do is dig up Valla's bones and burn them. So he doesn't figure Valla could care less any, any longer. He's been gone for a while. So um, that's how Valla's works end up uh, being published is Erasmus digs them out of a library and goes, Hoo-hoo-hoo. and he's deeply influenced by that. And what's very important is that idea of recognizing how textual transmission changed over time 
is going to end up influencing why there are certain verses in your King James Version of the Bible that are not in your ESV. Now the rubber is starting to meet the road. Um, because uh, Erasmus is going to have uh, the biggest influence upon the production of what is today called the Textus Receptus, uh, which is the Greek text upon which the King James Version of the Bible was, was based. And uh, believe it or not, to this very day, well, some of you may have saw, see, I did a, a debate book with Doug Wilson last uh, summer on this very issue. Uh, so it remains uh, something that's relevant to us even, even to this day. So we will, for those of you taking notes, uh, pick up with Erasmus uh, on our next, uh, our next study. Okay? All right, let's close the word of prayer. Father, once again, we are thankful for the freedom uh, that we have had to consider uh, your actions in the past. And as we get closer to uh, our time period, we would ask that you help us to remember and to recognize that we have been given so much. We have been influenced so heavily by those who've come before us. It's important for us to understand these things, to recognize your hand of providence in all things as well. We ask that you be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.